there seemed to be a, a pretty big gap between all of this great research that was coming out from academics that was published in the academic journals that then didn't make it to the general public, didn't make it to, to knowledge that people could use. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Learn how InnovaFeed's Helusia protein and oil for pets can unlock a more sustainable and performant future for pet foods at InnovaFeed.com forward slash Helusia. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our mission is to share new and emerging information to the pet care industry to help us continually innovate and improve our products to support the health and well-being of dogs and cats. I'm here today with Dr. Linda Case, and I'm your host, Dr. Kate Shoveler from the University of Guelph. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Kate. It's great to be here. Yes, nice to see you again. It's been a long time since we've been able to connect, and I'm very much looking forward to today's interview. I am too. I was hoping that maybe you could start by describing to the listener a little bit more about the business that you own, which is the Science Dog. Sure, sure. I'd happy happy to do that. So um, the Science Dog was basically an offshoot from my very first book. I'd written a number of textbooks when I was in academia and when I was working as a consultant. And I was also, of course, writing science writing for other scientists. And in the, gosh, I think 2012, um, I was doing a, I was also doing a lot of speaking at um, dog training conferences because I'm a dog trainer. And I kind of had a, a, a reputation of the dog trainer who does nutrition. And I was speaking at a conference about dog nutrition and um, an editor of a small um, publishing company came up to me and said, hey, do you want to write a book about this stuff? And so my first book into the popular press market was Dog Food Logic. Um, and that was published in 2014. It was the very first book that I wrote taking science and trying to make it palatable to um, dog folks and the consumer. And when I was publishing that book, my editor said, you know, there's this thing called a blog that's becoming popular. You should write a blog to support the book. And at the time I thought, oh, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm a science writer. I don't know. So um, we decided to give it a try. And my husband and I, on a, literally on a trip to Maine, um, we were in the car trying to come up with catchy names for this blog. And we came up with the science dog. 
So the Science Dog blog launched in 2013 and 2014, and its whole purpose is to take current research, and I pretty much cover primarily nutrition and then also behavior and social cognition in the dog and training, um, because again, those are our strong interests. And the blog um, became pretty popular. And then um, right before, <laughs> this was serendipitous, right before COVID hit, um, we had found a platform. We'd wanted to do online teaching for a long time. Um, but as you probably know, as an academic, um, the avenues for that were pretty limited. There was Coursera and EDX, but those were all platforms that were directed towards um, large corporations or, or more academic um, um, grouping. So they weren't they weren't set up for the small company. Um, but around that time, um, more and more of these um, online teaching platforms were available to small companies such as my own. And so in 2019, we launched the Science Dog courses, which are a set of courses um, designed to um, train both um, pet professionals in many different fields. Um, so we have a lot of trainers because, again, that's kind of was my niche for a long time. We have a lot of folks from the pet food industry, from small companies. Um, we have a lot of undergrads, and also we have a lot of pet food retailers that come and take our courses. So we teach primarily um, small bite um, nutrition courses. We have a set of core courses that we call our masterclass program. And then we also um, teach... One of my favorite projects is we have a webinar series where we invite um, researchers, usually young researchers who are just getting started in their careers, to present their research to our, our students. So we have about 10 of those launched right now. They're on demand, so people can take them at any time. So the reason I said it was serendipitous was that literally it was the end of 2019 that we launched our first course, and then everything shut down in 2020. And so we, um, we had to shut down our training, our dog training school, and we went completely online starting in 2020. And then um, it really grew from there. So we've been online now um, for almost four years. 84 million times a day, pets eat meals with ingredients from Trow Nutrition. We bring together the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending to unleash possibilities for pet food brands. Premixes are just the start. Turn to Trow for higher inclusion ingredients too, like proteins and carbohydrates and highly sensitive ingredients like probiotics. With our palatants and base blends, you can feel confident about what comes in our bags and goes in yours. Learn more at TroutNutritionPets.com. Fantastic. So this is a very interesting path and business. What was your background that brought you to this business, Linda? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been around for a little while, as you know, Kate. <laughs> so um, I actually grew up in a family that was an animal family. Um, I know you were a horse person from way back. I had a horse and a dog showing up and uh, growing up. And my mom, believe it or not, was a dog trainer. And so we spent many wonderful years training and showing dogs together. And I did my undergraduate at Cornell. And when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, I'm kind of a little embarrassed to say this on this podcast, um, I was actually interested in going to grad school for behavior and training. But at that time, it was the mid 80s, um, there were no programs. You know, today we have all these amazing um, dog labs that study social cognition in the dog and behavior and training, but those were non-existent back then. And so my... Um, 
my advisor at Cornell, um, Skip Hintz, was, who was an amazing guy, he was a horse nutritionist. And so I went to see him and, and he said, you know, Linda, a booming field. And he was so spot on. If you want to get a job and be employed, which I did, um, is animal nutrition. And if you're interested in dogs and cats, you should go either to UC Davis or to the University of Illinois. And so I applied both places. Um, I got more money here. So I came to U of I and I was really lucky because um, I did my master's in canine and nutri- feline nutrition. And I had some great mentors. I had George Fahey, who you've already interviewed, Gail Sarnecki, um, also Bob Easter. Um, I, I kind of credit Bob and, and George was really teaching me um, the importance of being a good scientist and the importance of good critical thinking skills. They just were amazing mentors. And, and so is Gail. And also Diane Hirakawa and I overlapped here. So um, when Diane left to work for the IMS company, I was at that point teaching at U of I. I taught the companion animal program for a number of years. She hired me um, to write with her um, a canine and feline nutrition textbook. And that book um, was kind of the start of my science writing career. I found that I loved science writing. Um, I went on to, to write a couple more textbook for, textbooks for the companion animal program. And then um, I eventually did leave the U of I um, to consult full-time. And I also had opened up a dog training school on some land that my husband and I bought. And that was taking a lot of my time. So then I spent a number of years, this is how you and I met, um, doing science writing for the industry. I was still writing primarily for scientists, for other scientists. So I was writing technical papers and white papers and some um, academic academic papers for publication. And um, so I was doing that and the training school. Um, and then eventually then, as I said, um, around 2014 was approached. Um, and that was kind of my jump from just writing scientific papers and doing science writing um, for other scientists and other nutritionists to, which I think feel like was a big jump um, to writing science writing for the general pet owner and for, and, and for what I call like the high interest, high level um, pet owner and pet industry um, person, professional. And that, that jump started in 2014 and that brings us up to date for now. Today, that is an an absolutely amazing journey. And if um, I really have an affection towards really great mentors, and I totally fan out when I meet outstanding scientists, and you you just named a litany of people in, in that really high, high bracket of animal nutritionists that that people have the opportunity to work for, and it changes their lives forever. I totally agree. So, so lucky uh, to have such a a storied interaction that continues to this day. So I I think, too, that um, you haven't you haven't really said this, but you're you're a very uh, you're very, very great at networking and seeing different approaches and perspectives of people and drawing them in. And I've always uh, when I've worked with you directly, it's always been um, and I don't mean easy in content. I mean, easy in, in the process. Uh, so if anybody does uh, reach out to you for a writing opportunity, I, I would fully endorse uh, working with you. You're, you're very lovely uh, to work with in, in all Thank respects. Thank you. That's, that's very sweet. And a very strong scientist too. So that <laughs> 
<laughs> when there's somebody who's really nice um, on the other side when you're having a good scientific debate. So that's a lot of <laughs> yes. So really what you do now is you are involved, if I was to kind of frame it up a little bit, um, in knowledge translation at multiple levels of end user. And so that might be other animal nutritionists, other people in the pet food industry. It could be the veterinarian, the veterinary technician, the paraprofessionals, uh, whether that be the breeder, the trainer, um, the, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, or last but not least, the dog uh, owner themselves. So can you talk a little bit about how difficult and what you need to consider when you're communicating at those different levels, but with a similar message? Yeah, it's a great question and one of my favorite topics. Um, because one of the things that I noticed um, working among dog trainers and the general dog owning population through our school was what I believed at the time. And I think exists, but is I think it's getting much better as you and I talked a little bit before we started today, is that there, there seemed to be a, a pretty big gap between all of this great research that was coming out from academics that was published in the academic journals that then didn't make it to the general public, didn't make it to, to knowledge that people could use and understand and say, well, this will make me um, select this particular food or feed my dog in this particular way. And also, I think it was very true in behavior and training. There's all this great research on social cognition in the dog um, that doesn't always trickle down into the the dog trainer, you know, even the dog, the professional trainer. And so, so that gap is what we try to, to, <laughs> to, um, cover with the dog, um, the science dog and with our courses. The problems, um, I think for me personally lie in, um, the way that scientists speak, which I speak as a scientist. So I talk about the evidence supports this or we don't have much evidence. We always, we, we don't talk in terms of this is now proven or this is now disproven, as you know, as a scientist, whereas the public often wants to just hear, you know, don't feed grapes to your dogs because it will kill them. Um, you know, rather than, well, we don't really know what's going on. And these are the, you know, this is the evidence we have so far. This supports it. This doesn't support it, which is, again, the correct way for a scientist to speak, but it's not necessarily what people always want to hear. Um, so I, I try with the, the science dog to always use that language, always use the evidence and also be a good critical thinker in that um, all good scientists will include in their papers, these are the limitations of this study, which is a again, it's good science. Um, and so I will include those in our blog. Um, the problems that we see, and, and again, it's not it's not often, but it happens as people will say, well, it was only 14 dogs or well, it was only a three week study. And they, you know, they don't really have a good sense of what a good dog study is and find something to to criticize. And, and that my response is, yeah, that's a limitation. Um, but this is what we have. And this is the evidence that we have. So I guess in a nutshell, I'm trying to to bring people up to think more like a scientist um, and not to expect science to bring them, you know, the answer once and for all, this is exactly what you should feed your dog. And this is why, um, you know, think like a critical thinker and try and make 
the best decision you can given the evidence that we have. Yeah, no, that's really true, Linda, is that scientists have to be accepting of the answer, it depends, and then use the really the individual studies to piece together what parts of the equation that they fill. And that's very hard. I think that people often are looking for that, you know, that pinnacle study. And and there's really that that might work for for drug discovery and that and that, you know, that final that final drug study that they're doing in the target population, etc. But nutrition and metabolism is is extraordinarily nuanced. And the fact that it's an environmental factor um in the genetics by environment interaction that we see, we have to acknowledge that it's only one. And um, if you don't tell me that, that you were feeding all those dogs at minus 30 degrees Celsius, as an example, then, then none of your feed intakes will make sense to me. They'll, they'll feel wrong. Um, I won't understand why any dog could possibly eat that much. So there's all this kind of nuance in science that takes a tremendous amount of education um, to really become comfortable with. And uh, I don't think any of us uh, would say that we know everything. It's just continual learning. And the minute you, you realize that everyone is learning and also on the communication end, then it becomes a lot, uh, a lot more seamless. So when we think specifically looking at your work, what uh, what of you have a tremendous amount of courses. You've published numerous books. What was your favorite thing to work on, and why? Ooh, <laughs> you know, without a doubt, across the board. Even the, what was it was a pretty well sold book, but it wasn't my my most highly sold book was Beware the Straw Man. Um, and, and the reason was that that, that book followed um, Dog Food Logic and it follows, it actually came, like many of, of my books have, it came out of a series of blogs, a series of essays in which um, I used a hypothetical s- story about a young woman and her border collie and the fact that she wanted to find out if a certain, this isn't nutrition, but it's it's certainly related. She wanted to find out if a certain approach to training, um, priming was what she was testing, was whether or not priming works in dog training. And so I start out in the blogs, there's a series of blogs on, on the science dog, um, just telling her story and how she tested her theory in her single dog. Um, and then we kind of take that and put critical thinking skills to it and say, well, why Why w- is one dog not enough? What else could be explaining these results? And they were like, the dog matures. He was a young dog when she started. Um, the dog is satiated, you know, because it was a food, it was a, <clears throat> a food treat experiment and a click and treat experiment. The dog was satiated one time, she treated him, wasn't another. You know, just again, simply the passage of time. There are all these other factors that might have influenced the dog's response. So then we jump to, well, what is a group and why do you need a sample group? And, and there's a slide in my talk that <clears throat> shows her asking her friends and she realizes I need a group of dogs to do this study. And so she asked her friends to bring their dogs, and then there's a, a slide of 15 
border collies. <laughs> and so then the idea of a representative sample size comes out. We talk about what is, what is a representative sample and how that affects the conclusions you can make from a study. So it walks this young woman through all of these permutations of finally coming up with a well-controlled study with a representative sample size to test her theory. And I just, I fabricate some data and show some graphs and things. And it, the whole purpose of that series is to show why we need science and why we need the scientific method per se. You know, and we, we I talk about this a lot in um, Dog Food Logic is that we touched on it a little bit earlier, is that nutrition is a hard science. It is, you know, it's based in biochemistry. And so we can measure things, but nutrition to dog owners doesn't feel like a hard science. It feels like emotion because we express love by feeding our dogs. It's a huge part of, you know, it's a huge part of our own culture. And so it's hard, I think, to reconcile those two things, to put on our critical thinking caps um, and not fall for things like, you know, feed your dog strawberries and he'll live forever. Or if you feed this particular diet, your dog won't get cancer because emotionally we're invested in that. We want to believe those things. And so, so with the science dog, with Beware the Straw Man, I was trying to show, yes, we can and do love our dogs, but we can help them the best by being critical thinkers and using evidence-based science to make decisions for them. So, so that's where that book came out of. And then it, it goes on to give a lot of examples of why science is needed for a you know, for health related and nutrition related, in my view, many things related um, decisions that we make for our dogs. And each essay kind of gives an example of that. So, so that was, I think, by far my favorite to write. And, um, and I may even go back and do a second edition of it because it's, it's definitely my favorite book. Interesting. Well, I've already written it down because I have not read it. Um, and it sounds very interesting. So I look forward to reading that and and uh, and then chatting to you about it again. It sounds sure. like a very interesting approach to enable knowledge translation. It's interesting to me because a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Dr. Jason Coe at um, – He's a colleague of mine here at the University of Guelph, and he does veterinary communications. And he also, in a couple of places, mentioned the importance of storytelling um, and also allowing the people that you're trying to target with your new with your knowledge translation interviewing them and understanding what they understand, how they perceive science, how they perceive what they're, what they're being communicated to. And that can be really honing in on how we translate this knowledge is critical in ensuring that people follow along, especially when the science is quite definitive. Sure. Um, so I think I, I just I just love your business and I absolutely see the role of knowledge translation. So I did not warn you uh, at all, and I'm always intrigued with knowledge translation as to what's coming. And I can tell on <clears throat> I'll maybe throw the marketers under the bus here uh, that I can tell that a lot of the marketing bits and pieces, I've run them through and they test positive for AI writing tools. 
I was wondering if you wouldn't mind commenting on where you see AI writing tools coming in to our knowledge translation at any point, because this would be a game changer. Yes, I agree. And I think we should both acknowledge that, at least for me, chat GPT uh, is what I occasionally go to to see what's happening and, and run anything to see if it's AI generated. And it gets science kind of wrong. It has yes. a real hard time. It has a, funny, it has a funny voice when it tries to do science. Yeah. It does. It, it can't it, it can't weigh the nuances. That's what mm-hmm. I'm picking up on. Yeah. So it doesn't, it can't say, oh, this design was like this with these outcomes. That That's why these look like this versus this other study where the dogs were heavier and they were of a different breed and therefore the results look like this as an example. Kind yeah, of sure. It out there. Um, but what do you think about tools like chat GPT in the pet care world? Yeah, I haven't personally used it, but um, on my blog, it comes up all the time. Do you want to use AI in this? Um, I, I personally think that it it's at least at its present state, I'm sure it's going to get better. It's, I think it's relatively easy to tell that it's not a person. I've had a number of comments on blog essays that clearly are chat GPT or, 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 you know, a, a bot of some type or a, a AI of some type, because it just, it, it doesn't sound like a person that's only, and, and also in these cases, it's basically just reiterated and put back together what was in the blog. Um, and it tries to be very complimentary. So you fall for it, you know, <laughs> um, I do have a funny story with that. I, I volunteer every Friday um, at our local soup kitchen. And one of um, our fellow volunteers, we've become a very close group is a retired journalist and he was a journalist in economics and um, and also in um, economics and unions. And so he's still very active in his field and he still writes um, for their national journal. He's the, the editor. So he went to their annual conference, this is probably six months ago, and he wrote, he wrote himself for their journal, um, a review of the conference. And then he had uh, one of the chat GPTs and he, I think he has the higher level because there's different levels you can get. He had that, he put the right, you know, the, whatever you do with the words you put in and he had it write the same article. And then he gave me both articles and said, um, can you tell which one is me? And, and I instantly could tell because he's kind of a sardonic, funny guy. And I could, I could tell his voice in, in the actual one that was his. Um, but it was actually quite good, the one that um, the, the um, AI one. So when I went back to him and said, I think this is the one you did. He said, yeah, that's right. And he said, he picked out several names in the AI generated one. And he said, these are fabricated. It just made up names of professors. And they were actually like, you know, Dr. So-and-so at, you know, University of Guelph and actual universities. He said it just made them up and said things about their theories. And he said they don't exist. They don't even exist. So um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was my response exactly. Yeah. So, so um, I personally, I have not had, I haven't used it at all and really don't intend to um, because I enjoy writing and um, I just have not, but I have noticed it in comments um, on some of the blogs. Yeah. I think the, the writing trails far behind. I can tell you, I don't know if you're, you're involved anymore in data management and statistical analysis. But if you need to find the error in your SAS or your R code, chat GPT, boom, it's going to be right there right away. 
Absolutely amazing with code. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So if anybody's not using it for code now, uh, you're just wasting time. Just try. You should understand everything yourself. But when you're looking for that comma that you can't see because your eyes are failing you and you need it out of your SAS code because it buggers everything up, it'll pick it up among other things. So that's that's very cool. For a few things. So I do understand and I'm very excited about this because I too have been involved uh, quite a bit in uh, alternative ingredients for, well, quite frankly, the, the entire food industry, but you are working on a course based on plant-based foods for dogs and I did not ask before. And cats are just dogs. We're sticking to dogs and we do have some cat courses at the science dog we have um, we have three core courses basics uh, feeding through the life cycle and dog food smarts and those um, kind of make up our master's class program you know and again um, I should iterate these are not academic programs um, they are for continuing education for um, pet for pre- mainly pet professionals you know, such as trainers breeders um, we get a lot of um, small retail shops um, sending their staff so it's not you know when we say master's class program that's just using that very popular um, title for um, online programs that are a little more in depth um, so th- that's our master's class program and then we really had a lot of interest in raw based diets of course and and my interest uh, just because it's such a booming field is a plant-based food. So we're adding specialties. Um, They're a little bit smaller courses because those are pretty big courses, our core courses. So we're adding three specialties to that. The first will be the plant-based foods, the second raw-based foods, and the third um, homemade diets. And so um, we're working right now on the plant-based foods. And it's really fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of good research available, um, certainly more than there was (laughs) pre- TCM issue. <laughs> um, so it's benefited from that. You know, um, you know, traditionally, as you know, you know, if we said plant-based diet, we thought soybean and corn, you know, and, and now we've got all these newcomers that, yeah, they're newcomers, but there's some good research behind them, some of your own research, of course. Um, so, so we're concentrating on that um, just to show what's what's possible, um, what nutrients to be aware of, how to select a diet. We're doing an entire scan of that industry and, and going to provide different companies and different sources of foods, um, of the plant-based foods. Um, so hopefully that one will be popular. We've had a lot of interest in doing more than just the three cores in our, um, our webinars. Um, so it was kind of time to, to start to add another um, course with a little more meat to it, if you will. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So when you think about plant-based foods in general and speaking to the industry who may be interested in developing these alternative diets for dogs, I always have to ask, I, I have my own opinion on it as well, but when we start talking about foods, rather let's rather than plant-based, I'm going to say that eliminate animal-based ingredients – I'll take right. that different route. Where do these novel ingredients that we're getting approval on now, like black soldier fly larvae, like cricket, where do insects fall? Can you use them in a plant-based diet? 
I think that's a great question. And actually, that course, even though technically it's called plant-based foods, we are including a chapter on insect-based. And, and I think that's, again, one of the things that we strive for with the science dog, um, and as I know you know about us, is that um, we are not we are completely independent. I'm not, you know, I'm not, fun- we're not funded by a pet food company or, or insect based protein um, supplier. So um, the way we start that course, because as I'm sure you know, um, just as raw based feeding is a, a very emotionally laden topic, God knows why, but it is. Um, so is plant-based feeding. So I get, I get, you know, I get feedback, positive and not positive from each end. And, and for some people, feeding plant-based, fi- plant-based foods to dogs seems to be a personal offense to them. And so um, what we talk about in the very first lectures is there's no value judgment here. These are the facts about why, given your surveys that came out of your lab, actually, why people may be choosing, and we've got data on it, you know, it's self-reported. Yeah, but it's data saying, this is why I want to feed this to my dog. And these are the percentages. This is what, why people are saying, I want to at least feed some plant-based food to my dogs. Might not even be totally vegan. It might just be, I want to increase how many plant, how much plant-based food he uses, he consumes. So, In that um, respect, so from those, the, from that standpoint, we are including a chapter on instant insect-based foods or insect-based proteins um, for those who do draw the line. Because some would say, no, it's an animal, um, you know, it's an insect. No, it's a no, it's a no-go. It's got to be all plant-sourced. But some will say. Mm, I can go with larva, you know, that's okay. So, so we're including it there just to cover that one. And also as an alternative protein source that is sustainable. A big issue is, again, as you know, is that a fair number, especially our younger dog owners are saying, I want to select a protein source or a food that is more sustainable. And so, you know, most of the evidence, not all the evidence, suggests that insect-based proteins are more sustainable environmentally. So that's another reason that we're including it in that course. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that I think that sometimes people forget that globally, we all have different approaches to food. And that's not just what we eat. It's also how we eat. It's our relationship with food. It is very, very complex. And it's part of what we need to respect. It's part of culture. It's part of religion. Um, Whether you agree with those things, those are all personal choices that we make. And when we're serving an entire sector, we have an obligation to explore all of those avenues and try to flesh them out. Uh, for the industry to understand. And, and this is frankly one, one place that I wish that the industry wouldn't be trying to make points of different differentiation on. Uh, it really is confusing to the consumer when the number one question from a pet owner is what is the best food on the market? Oh my gosh. I know. Yep. Yeah. And then I, I try to teach my students, I've, I'm sure I've said this in a, in, in a podcast before, and I'd like to know how you address this. But I, I, ask my, I ask the students, I do my background in my first class of pet nutrition. 
And then I say, all right, let's have a fun discussion. You all have opinions. You've been involved in parts of the industry, but most certainly you are all dog owners or cat owners. What do you think I feed? And usually they, they go, so I give them seven minutes the first time and then they come back and this was actually the first year. So my reputation must be preceding me. Um, a group of students, as soon as I asked the question, they said, sorry, Dr. Schlubber, we can't answer that question. You haven't given us sufficient information. I was like, <laughs> yes, you asked me more questions, right? So that was, that's really important. And then I start talking to them about the questions they need to ask others, especially if they're going to be the one that's giving advice. Yes, whether exactly, exactly. Yeah. You can go from the veterinarian to the breeder on this, right? right? If you don't understand where someone's perspective is coming from and you give them a suggestion that doesn't resonate with their own moral stance, you've, you've exactly. already yeah. lost the discussion. Yep. So uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a really important thing to think about. So let's get down into this plant-based a little bit more and a couple of things maybe that you have learned. You know a tremendous about amount about nutrition. So things like processing can both improve and uh, and also damage an ingredient. We will go beyond that kind of work. But what were the five most interesting things that you learned while you were putting this course together about either people who want to feed plant-based foods to their dogs or plant-based foods? Sure, sure. Well, first, the course is about a third ready, so <laughs> so I do not I do not pronounce to be a, an expert at all yet. But but I'm learning. I'm on the learning curve. And first and foremost, because I just finished this chapter, was on on the all the survey work. Most much of which came out of your lab, is that across the board, almost, almost, almost 100% of people who choose, especially a vegan diet for their dog, are vegetarian or vegan themselves. Not surprising, you know, that they, they choose that. And a, a small number, it, it's actually fairly, very um, odd for someone who's not vegan themselves to then select that for their dog. So, um, but um, I think one of the estimates, it was something, you know, if we're, if we're, um, to just give it a, a wide a wide range, I think it was between five and ten percent. Ten percent was the highest of owners in these surveys that were at least interested in a plant based food. And and one of the reasons we're going with plant based food is the same reason um, that that term has become popular in the human realm. And again, as you know, you know whatever happens in human nutrition trickles down after a few years into dog nutrition. And and it's because it's less restrictive in many ways. You know, it says just increase um, the the number of plants or plant-based foods that you want to feed your, you yourself or your dog. And for those who are doing it because of sustainability, that's a really nice option for them. You know, they're not saying I'm going to feed my dog a vegan food. I may just add a plant-based food into the mix of foods that I give him. So, so that's why we went with that is that we want to give that, that, you know, basically that broad umbrella versus, versus um, a narrow. So that was the first thing that we learned was that, um, that it's mainly vegetarians vegans themselves, not surprising. But the 10% value, if you actually look at, what is it, 75 million owned dogs in the United States, well, 10% of that is is 
a lot of dogs. It's 7 million dogs. So, so it's still a lot of pet owners who are at least considering it and thinking about it. And most of those surveys did not um, ask about insect-based protein, but there is one, I wrote about this in the blog a while back, one study that looked at interest. And of course, Again, we all know this. The ick, the ick factor is is high on why people would reject an insect-based protein diet. But um, so that again, I don't have anything to speak to that in the course yet. Um, but it would be interesting to see where those numbers lie as well. Um, and the other thing that I think, again, because I'm trying to translate to pet owners and various types of pet professionals, some who may or may not have a nutrition background, is um, the idea of processing. Because we're in an age of, of decreasing how much processing is done. But with a plant-based diet, because of the anti-nutritional factors, because of, of carbohydrates, you have to cook a plant-based diet. It has to be processed. I would even venture that it'd be hard to make a homemade diet. You know, we can, but I think you have, they have to be cooked and we have to make sure that the anti-nutritional factors and the various um, pulses and legumes that are used are denatured. Um, so that's another point that we make very strongly um, because we've got such a strong raw food-based group of pet owners that they may just think, well, I can do the same thing with a plant-based diet. Well, you most certainly cannot. And the other thing I think that I would add is that this isn't a bad thing, but it's just a fact is that when you feed a plant source protein and a plant-based diet, it is almost across the board going to have lower um, digestibility values than a high meat-based diet that's a high quality. And that's because of the carbs and the resistant starches and the fibers that come along with it, which again, can be a good thing. As, you know, as many that know, know more than I do about the microbiome know that's a good thing. So, but it's something I think um, that's important to bring up because there's, there's this belief, <laughs> there's this belief in the dog owning population and definitely among trainers that the better a food is, the less your dog poops. And, you know, down to basically then they shouldn't poop at all at some point. And, you know, we know that's wrong. We need a we need a healthy microbiome and a healthy gut and we need normal defecation. Um, so so we can't go too far the other way in terms of of digestibility values. So this idea of a food having a slightly higher a slightly lower digestibility value um, is antithetical to how many people think they should select a good diet. But I would argue that, no, it's just a factor of a plant-based food. It's, it's just going to come along with it. Yeah. And, and that, that total dietary fiber can, it can be formulated to and understood as, as well to understand what's available to the animal um, that digestibility largely accounts to. But it means that that due diligence has to be done. And so I think that your course, and I don't want to go in into details because I think it's important for anybody on this call who is um, is considering either being a manufacturer of a plant-based diet or professionals that are considering starting to advise plant-based diets, it's very, very important to understand that what you're doing. And your course is one of many that that starts to fill that knowledge gap for companies and professionals. And I think that it, it would be wise one day too, to, to extend that to the consumer, because as you said, this generation um, and the general, well, as you go kind of down in age, uh, vegetarianism and veganism go, just goes up. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not a judgment, it's an observation. And to your point, those are the people who also are starting to ask about these options for their pets um, and see themselves as the guardian for their pet and the guardian for the planet. And that's an important role. And I really um, love the idea of if, you know, if we each did a small, something small to improve the situation we're in, think about the monumental change we can make. So I, I love this idea. I have one last question just because I'm horribly interested did is do vegetarians and vegans they put mushrooms in plants right mushrooms in their diet you mean i'm sorry no they assume that mushrooms are plants oh yes i i believe so it's interesting only yeah, because it's a very good point yeah they their genotypes closer to ours than it is to a plant. That's very interesting. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's why I'll be interested to hear. You know, because again, the surveys that I've seen on insect based protein has been more about the yuck factor than yeah. oh they you know than they had that they're an animal or an insect you know that they're a living being you know versus a not you know a plant. So um, I'd be interested to see as as they become more popular, you know, where that research goes in terms of what the perception of owners um, is. Yeah. And I'll be interested to see as we kind of move along. And I think it's going to, when food prices start to increase, that will increase their feed prices as well, whether you call it pet food or pet feed or animal feed. Um, I think, I, I wonder if when things get more expensive and insect meal becomes more affordable, whether that will be the tipping point sure. for people yeah. to get over yes. their X factor. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it, it's going to be the future is always interesting and unknown. It, yes, I agree. Well, thank you for covering the your business and knowledge translation. I've I've really really enjoyed this. And usually at the end, I ask a couple uh, softer questions. And I'm going to rephrase the question I almost ask everyone because I am well aware that you have quite a few dogs. So <laughs> my next question is: Do you also have cats? We do. We have a wonderful cat. We have Pete the cat, uh, and he is a formerly feral cat um, who we really thought we were going to trap because we live out in the country, so we get feral cats. Um, he showed up, um, gosh, 12 years ago, and uh, we trapped new to release him. We thought, you know, we're never going to have him in the house. He's totally wild. And then we, we put a little igloo up for him outside. It was wintertime after we had neutered him, and, and he we were worried about him. So we put an igloo, a heated igloo home for him and he stayed in there for a while. And then he slowly came into our mudroom and, and long story short, he is the best. We've always had cats and he's the best cat we've ever had. He's our, our third dog. He's just a wonderful boy. So yes. So we have Pete and he gets along with our dogs always has. So, uh, so he's, he's kind of a cat dog. Yes. <laughs> well, if we let him, when we, we, when we walk the dogs on the road, he, we, he does still, I hate to say this, but he does go out occasionally. Uh, we don't like him to, but, you know, again, he was feral, so he scoots out and um, he just stays right around the house. But if we walk the dogs, he comes along for walks, and which, again, we, we worry about because we don't want him on the road. But he's, he's very much considers himself part of, part of the family. 
Oh, that's amazing, Linda. He sounds like a funny. I I knew another Pete the Cat as well. <laughs> I think there's some Pete the Cat books out there. There are. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say we didn't know about the books and we named them. We just thought it was a good name. <laughs> I knew another cat. He was he was a white cat. He was deaf as well. So Pete the he was a deaf Pete the Cat, <laughs> and he was uh, a character. Very funny. It, he totally benefited from not being able to hear anything because they had this obnoxious smaller dog in the house. <laughs> so and he was, I didn't care at all. Yeah. Um, okay. So one last question for you, because I have in the past connected some students with you that are really good writers. And if in undergraduate or graduate students are thinking about getting into scientific writing and knowledge translation. What is your advice for that? Oh, goodness. Um, I th- personally, and this is actually definitely a personal opinion, is to start in academia because I, I really don't think you can become a good science writer. And I, I, again, I think I was just in the right place at the right time when I met Diane and she and Dan needed someone to you know, translate a lot of the research that the IMS company was doing at the time. They didn't have writers um, because I think if you start in the you know, more marketing, um, public realm, it's harder to go deep than it is to, to go the opposite way. I mean, for me anyway, um, I had then the background of having the rigor of, a, of having taken data and taken, you know, the original research and say, you know, make, writing an academic paper. So, you know, for your students, I think they're well suited for that because they're going to come out of your program having published some papers. Um, and then, you know, there are several avenues. Um, I'm not sure there are avenues you can make a living at because there are so many, um, you know, journalism is, is a tough field these days and in science journalism is no different. Um, but there are a number of publications and magazines um, that really do want good dog, cat, you know, of all realms, you know, health, nutrition, behavior training, um, writers, and, and that you can at least do that freelance. Um, you know, my, again, my personal feeling is um, I'm not a marketing writer. I don't write fluff and I'm not interested in writing fluff. Um, and so, so I think that true science writing is a more narrow field and a little more difficult to get into, but I wouldn't dissuade anyone from doing it at all because I think it's, I think it's very well needed. And um, especially in this day and age when there's so, so many myths out there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for all of your efforts in educating the sector and working with every part of the sector. It cannot be easy. And for that, thank you very much for that, that part too, Linda. Oh, thank you, Kate. It's been a delight as always uh, chatting with you. Yeah. And thanks for everything today. And if anyone wants to reach out to Linda, uh, you can go and visit the science dog. Uh, It quite literally is the science dog.com. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and thank you, Linda. Thank you, Kate. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. 
With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.